This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 30th of July, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, Sydney's lockdown and coronavirus disaster goes from bad to worse. And the vanity of politicians. How important is public image for a Prime Minister? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. Some people call me the space cowboy. Thanks to all those new supporters on Patreon who signed up last week. Thanks to Gerald, Leanne, Jimmy, Lindsay, Christine and Dragan for signing up. And if you're curious about our Patreon channel, there's a weekly mini podcast, there's early releases, and we're working on some different tiers of support there. It's only $5 per month and it's a good way of supporting independent journalism. You don't have to, of course, but there's also our main podcast and regular news on our website, newpolitics.com.au. But David, I think we've got just about everything covered. I can't think of a better value place to go than here, really, to be quite honest. Even for free, uh, you still get a lot of content, but to pay that extra bit of money to get so much more is definitely worth it. And I thank everyone who has so far. The coronavirus numbers just keep rising in Sydney, and while the numbers are not spiralling out of control just yet, yesterday the case numbers in Sydney were 239, in London they were just over 3,000, but it does seem that the New South Wales government has lost control of the agenda. It's now trying to market and spin its way out of trouble, instead of acknowledging the problems that they created in the first place. And of course, this is the way that politics operates. Manipulate information, present it in the best way possible, deflect from the problems and find someone else to blame. But there are limits to this strategy and it seems that the public is finally starting to catch up. And doing more of the same is just not going to work anymore. Generally, when these types of issues occur, and especially during a national crisis, well, people just want these problems solved. But the New South Wales government, like their Liberal counterparts in the federal government, just seem to be more intent on pandering to vested interests, blaming the public for not doing the right thing, sending out confusing messages. And all of this suggests that the current lockdown in Sydney is likely to be with us for some time to come. Yeah, it's been attributed to Einstein. I don't know that he actually said it, but it's insanity to try the same thing over and over again and expect different results. It's absolutely true. And sure, there's been a bit of tightening, particularly in the Labor voting seats and local government areas, not so much in the more liberal voting areas. They're bringing in the army to help enforce. I don't think this is a very good idea at all. The military can do some things really brilliantly with the pandemic, setting up extra vaccination hubs, mobile field hospitals, if it does spin out of control, helping to transport equipment and doctors. And and I think the military could do that in a very exemplary manner. And I would support that. I'm not quite sure I want to see soldiers of the streets of places like Fairfield and Punchbowl and Parramatta, because I think that sends a message that the government has lost total control, not only of the narrative, but of public order. It's an admission of defeat from them. 
Well, sending in the army is definitely not a very good look. It's also a case of, well, what are they going to be doing there anyway that the New South Wales Health and the New South Wales Police Departments are not already doing as well? Again, this is that marketing process that comes in. When we have problems, when we have difficulties, we send in the army. That's what the government does of the federal government and the New South Wales government as well. Because the New South Wales government, supported by the federal government, they wanted to play politics with this process all the way from the beginning. They wanted to avoid all the language that was being used by someone like Daniel Andrews and all of the actions of the Labor governments around Australia. So that's in Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia. And this is where the political management has been quite inept. Successful leaders doesn't matter which political side of the fence they come from, they just take whatever they can and whatever policy they can from different leaders and then claim it as their own. And for some reason, she just couldn't do that. It was all taken up by hubris and pride. And that's where a lot of these problems have originated from. A government that is so intent on playing politics and they just couldn't break their habit. Yeah, again, they're essentially undergraduate politicians. I've said this before, they're undergraduate politicians who learnt the craft at university but didn't actually adapt the craft into real life. So apart from beating Labor, they have no strategy. It wouldn't occur to them to work with Labor. It wouldn't occur to them to say even, well, yes, it worked in Victoria, but it also worked in South Australia and we've taken the Marshall approach in South Australia because there were a couple of differences, not many, and they were basically regional she could at least attempt to hide the fact that they've taken the, their strategy from Victoria by saying, well, you know, this is what Stephen Marshall did in South Australia and we thought it was a mature and effective way of doing it and so that's what we're doing. Uh, acknowledging ideas come from elsewhere, acknowledging that they're not the be-all and end-all of, of ideas and actually trying to implement something that has worked elsewhere might actually do her a bit of good. Of course, <laughs> they'd also then have to focus on the latest Daryl Maguire corruption scandal, which came out the other night. So maybe they don't want to do that at all. Well, those particular numbers, the increase from 177 up to 239, that's quite a drastic increase in those coronavirus case numbers. And it did come in at a very convenient time because those allegations of corruption between Gladys Berejiklian and Daryl Maguire, who used to be the member of Wagga until he was forced to resign a couple of years ago. The other issue is that we're talking about New South Wales here and New South Wales governments, irrespective of whether they're Liberal or Labor, they're pretty much guided by vested interests. And there were two good examples of that where the Health Minister, Brad Hazard, he was asked by a journalist to criticise Alan Jones over his anti-vaccine comments and his anti-lockdown comments, but he was very reluctant to do that. He avoided mentioning Alan Jones at all, and he deflected and generalised his comments. He just said, well, people in the media, they've got a responsibility. They have to just follow what the best health advice is. So he totally avoided criticising Alan Jones. The other example of vested interest is the decision that they made yesterday to make Year 12 students return back to school in two weeks' time. Now, there's been a lot of pressure coming in on the New South Wales government from the private school lobby groups. They want their exams, they want their tuition, because they're paying big dollars for it. The New South Wales government succumbed to that but that's another example of vested interest in the New South Wales government directing public policy. And I've got a feeling that this, if it does eventuate, is going to be a disaster for Year 12 students. It's potentially really 
bad. It's a super spreader event, much like the protests in Sydney the other day. And I think, too, I think we should acknowledge that some of the bigger numbers we're seeing may well come from these. I don't think the figures are through yet. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that uh, those who are at the protest have spread it to those who would go and get tested. Of course, I will retract that if I'm wrong, but schools are going to be worse. Schools are petri dishes at the best of time. If you've ever spent more than a week in a school, you will get sick till your immune system gets used to it. I don't think there's a teacher here who will disagree with that. And year 12, even if you buy the rubbish that children don't get coronavirus which Gladys was spruiking uh, last year, a lot of Year 12 uh, students are functionally adults at 18. And then, of course, you've got teachers, you've got admin staff who have to be there, you have contractors because things go wrong in a functioning school that's natural wear and tear, things break, things need to be fixed, things need to be painted, things need the garden needs to be maintained. You have other visitors to the school They probably won't continue music lessons and and drama lessons and the things that often outside teachers provide. You have casual teachers who might work at three or four schools in a week and who can't afford to not take the work. And so we'll ignore that sniffle. It's insanity. And there are quite a few anomalies within this. You know, it seems like a thought bubble that they thought, well, we've got a bit of pressure coming in from the private school lobby. Let's tell them this and see how that flies. The issue is that initially they said, well, we're going to be vaccinating all year 12 students with the Pfizer vaccine. Okay, so far so good. But then they retracted that slightly and said, well, we're only going to be vaccinating those students that are in those lockdown local government areas at the moment. Now, that creates all sorts of issues where there's certain schools which are on the cusp of some of those local government areas. Half of their students are in those lockdown areas. Half of those students are not. So that means half of the students that are turning up to year 12, half of them will be immunised, half of them will will not. So this is a policy that hasn't really been thought out. Yeah, and they're also taking the extra vaccines from regional New South Wales, including the far west, which has a high Indigenous population. We know that due to some of the living circumstances, the virus is particularly virulent in poorer areas. It's also particularly devastating to Indigenous communities. They're taking it from Indigenous communities to give to some kids, but not all kids. And I do understand that some parts of the state have to make sacrifices for other parts of the state, but it's never good when it's the more disadvantaged making the sacrifice. Some people have been criticising us for saying, well, look, stop, leave the New South Wales government alone. Like, stop harassing them. They've got a big duty to get on with. They've got issues to deal with. Just leave them alone. Wait until they've actually finished that. But the problem is that they've been given so many opportunities to do the right thing, and they're just not doing it. And what they do is they cover over this with a lot of spin. Gladys Berejiklian, she keeps saying that this is Australia's harshest lockdown. Well, it's not. It's nowhere near the harshest lockdown. That's immaterial. But if you are saying, yes, we are having a very hard lockdown, well, do a very hard lockdown. Don't have this sort of half-hearted process. The other factor is that the New South Wales government keeps making rules, but then they start adding exemptions. So, for example, shopping is restricted to five kilometres from your home in those local government areas. 
And then they add an exemption. So shopping is restricted to a five kilometre zone from your home unless you cannot get that item within those five kilometres. If you decide, oh, okay, well, I've got some goat curry meat that is only available 30 kilometres away, so I'm going to go there. Or there's an apple from Batlow, you can't get it specifically within that five kilometre zone. So I'm going to go out and get that special apple that I can't get locally. And that's okay because Gladys said that it's okay. And this is basic human psychology where governments can make as many restrictions as they like, but if they offer exemptions, well, people will go for the exemptions that suit their circumstances. Generally, humans will choose the rules that suit them the best. She's relying on common sense and Without giving any guidance on what common sense is, people will uh, use common sense as their own interest. People will travel more than the five kilometres to get what they think they need. Now, in some cases, medicine, for example, particular dietary needs that are medical or deeply cultural, this might be justified. But in some cases, it's clearly not going to be justified. And also all of these actions suggest that there's a very divided cabinet within the New South Wales government that based on these actions that we're seeing that half of the cabinet wants to see a full lockdown, harsher and tougher restrictions. The other half wants to let it rip pretty much. They want it open up as soon as possible. It's almost like they want their own version of Boris Johnson's Freedom Day in Britain where they just let it rip, have everything open up as soon as possible and just see where that takes them. Yeah, exactly. It's this foreign neoliberal nonsense that has infected both parties, really, but has taken over the federal Liberal Party and is taking over the state Liberal Party. It seems to be uh, immune in South Australia and Tasmania. It's destroyed the Western Australian Party and the, the Victorian Party. It's about disaster capitalism and making as much money as possible for the already rich. You can see it's the election of Trump and then the subsequent defeat of Trump, the whole Brexit thing. And of course, Tony Abbott, possibly a correction with Malcolm Turnbull, but not a strong enough correction. And then Scott Morrison. And it's essentially shoveling money to their mates and cutting taxes and cutting wage regulations and occupational health and safety, et cetera, et cetera. And we can also see that the media has had enough of this process and they're starting to get very, very frustrated. Here's one excerpt from the Sky journalist, Andrew Clonell. He's asking Gladys Berejiklian a question about the failures of the lockdown. With these numbers today, will you admit that your strategy has failed? That you have failed. Sorry, I'll just, if I can just finish. And you said the settings were right. That's not true. And National Cabinet's going to decide it was a short, sharp, hard lockdown was the way. Can you see now that you've made, made a mistake there and the strategy is failing? And this death of a thousand cuts, a little bit of restrictions every day just isn't working. You have to come down hard. Gladys Berejiklian has had an easy run with the media and if there had been more scrutiny over her actions over the past few months, we might not actually be where we are at the moment. And she's 
making it sound like the Delta strain of coronavirus has taken everyone by surprise, that's not actually correct. Her government was warned about the Delta strain three months ago and the need to prepare for it. And it's not like this is some sort of secret government information. Delta was running rampant in India earlier this year. It was officially identified by the World Health Organization in May this year. The New South Wales government, they had the information and the federal government too that Delta was coming. It was a far more aggressive strain of coronavirus. We had the New South Wales Premier refusing to lock down early in Sydney. And then we had the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, congratulating her for not locking down earlier. I think there needs to be an inquiry into this process. Every other state in a health emergency, the chief health officer or the chief medical officer takes over. In New South Wales, the chief health officer advises the health minister. I would guess up until the last 10 years, it would be functionally the same thing where the health minister would accept the advice of the CMO in in New South Wales. I'm not about to say that this is the only government in New South Wales that hasn't been compromised by vested interests, but this government is particularly so. There was the press conference last year in which the Australian Hoteliers Association basically got up at the end and congratulated Gladys for making all the right decisions. We now know they were the wrong decisions. We also now know that they opened basically poker machines and pubs and clubs, and that kept the virus bubbling under for another six months, leading us to where we are exactly now. We have retailers like Jerry Harvey, happy to pocket JobKeeper, not pass it through to his employees as he was meant to do. And I know Jerry Harvey's not the only one, but he has put himself as a public face so he can cop the brickbacks as well as the bouquets, basically arguing that Harvey Norman is an essential business that must remain open. Refrigerators are vital, and if your refrigerator breaks, you need a new one. Televisions in a pandemic where communication is vital, uh, I think it's, it's really important that we have access to these. But we don't need to have the shops open. We can have click and collect. We can have delivery. We can have all kinds of things that will stop the spread. For whatever reason, the big retailers want their shops open, fully open. And I think that that's part of the reason anyway that has led us to where we are now. Well, I think Harvey Norman might be an essential business for Jerry Harvey, but that might be about it. The other factor is that the New South Wales government and the federal government, they've been saying that there is no guidebook during a pandemic. Well, there actually is. And here it is in dot point. Effective rollout for the vaccination program, secure long-term quarantine facilities and use hotel quarantines as a short-term solution only. Go hard, go fast and go early on lockdowns. Provide financial support to the community and keep the community safe. Now, David, the federal government should be listening to us more often. There's the guidebook developed through the experiences of governments from all around the world. It's an easy five-point plan. And so far, they've stuffed up every single point. Yeah, they have. There's guidebooks all over the world. We know it didn't work in Sweden. The jury is still out in London, but there's no reason to suspect that it it won't work in London. Uh, 3,000 cases a day, I think. Actually, we can probably safely say it hasn't worked in London. It did work in Vietnam till Delta, and it's now starting to work again. It worked in New Zealand. Uh, It worked in Victoria. There's guidebooks all over the place if they were just humble enough to use them. 
Now, David, you and I have got communication skills. We don't come cheap, of course, but we could present this in a PowerPoint presentation or it could be in a little publication or a little booklet for them, or they could just listen to our podcast. And there you go, there's a guidebook. So it could be easily done, but for some reason, the New South Wales government and the federal government, they've just ignored the guidebook. It is there. They just decided to look somewhere else. Gladys said something about she didn't have a crystal ball. She didn't need one. (laughs) Look over the border, look over the Tasman, look over the Pacific, look over the Andaman Sea. It didn't have to go very far. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and now you can follow us at Patreon. Up next... How important is the vanity of a Prime Minister? There's not too many times a Prime Minister will open up a media conference like this. Gold, gold, gold. That's what has happened today. It's a, something for all Australians to celebrate. And I know that really lifts spirits of Australians right across the country and particularly to Ariane Titmus. She is the he did go on to talk about the Olympic Games and gold medals for the next three minutes before getting into the serious issues of coronavirus outbreak in Sydney. And that shows his priorities. The Olympic Games are on, even though it's pretty much just advertising with a bit of sport thrown in. But now that the gold standard of New South Wales has gone, it seems that the Prime Minister has decided to focus on the real gold that's happening somewhere else. This is a marketing process that is becoming a repeat pattern for the Prime Minister. He disappears from public view between Sunday night and Wednesday afternoon. And in case anyone is wondering, men do need a two to three day recovery cycle for each round of hair transplant therapy. And for the past month, Morrison has been absent at the beginning of the week, appearing with slightly more hair a few days later and hoping that no one would notice, and revealing some good marketing news about everything unrelated to politics, the economy or the well-being of the nation. In the meantime, the vaccination rollout is still faltering. It's only at 13% of the population. Nothing has happened on fixing quarantine issues. And there was another quarantine outbreak a few days ago in Queensland. Sydney is in crisis and while all of this is happening, the Prime Minister is going missing while he's keeping up appearances and worried about how he looks in public. The public image of a Prime Minister is important, but I think it's time for Scott Morrison to decide whether he wants to be the Prime Minister of Australia or whether he wants to be the next contestant on The Bachelor. Looks are important. One of the things that came out on Misrepresented is that female politicians always, always have to dress well. And there's a slightly lesser standard for male politicians. Now, all male politicians wear a suit. Somebody like Scott Morrison doesn't wear a suit very well. 
Malcolm Turnbull knew how to wear a suit. And most men listening will know that there is a skill to wearing a suit properly. You don't just flop it on. You have to place it properly. You have to wear it properly. Scott Morrison isn't a great dresser in that kind of way. In one sense, it doesn't matter. In another sense, in a pandemic, to go and focus on your looks beyond wearing a nice suit, keeping clean shaven or a neatly trimmed beard, having your hair cut where possible. And people will accept too that circumstances might mean that you don't look as tidy as you normally might. If he is getting hair plugs, it's a ridiculous vanity too. Men of a certain age start to lose their hair. And I know too that all prime ministers have a edge of vanity around them. Billy McMahon wore lifts in his shoes because he was about five foot eight. So he'd put the lifts in his shoes to make him five foot nine or five foot ten, just to give him that little bit extra height. Robert Menzies always dressed very well. And there's that vanity about it. But most prime ministers know when the vanity has to go aside. Bob Hawke was a terrible dresser and always looked a bit disheveled till later when he started a bit sharper but the way his hair was and everything it's interesting well you don't want your prime minister to look scruffy but you also you don't want them to look like a tv quiz show host either so before he became prime minister john howard did fix up his teeth apparently they were pretty awful beforehand Paul Keating instructed cameras during question time not to photograph an emerging bald spot on the back of his head. So politicians do spend a lot of time checking their appearances, doing voice training and media training, and that's part of the process. So they want to present themselves in the best way possible to the public. That's all understandable. That's acceptable. But a prime minister being absent during a pretty critical time in Sydney and in New South Wales, but being absent just to fix up their hair during a crisis. But you'd you'd expect that they do this sort of stuff during Christmas holidays or something like that. Yeah, there's times to do this. Of course, he's in Hawaii during Christmas holidays, which is bushfire season. And of course, too, a prime minister can't predict a disaster going to happen, although in this case, uh, they probably could have predicted it. There's no real good time for a Prime Minister to go on holidays. Cyclone Tracy hit on Christmas Eve, for example. Bushfires are often over Christmas. Flooding can happen during school holidays and Easter and things like that. But there are times (laughs) where you can say that it's less likely something's going to happen and I can send in the deputy to deal with stuff while I return or while I get the bandages off my head or what have you. He's not a terribly substantial figure. Well, it is said that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. I'm pretty good with my history, but I don't think that fiddles actually existed in the Roman Empire days. But it seems that Scott Morrison is just so fixated on winning the next election that it's all about marketing. It's all about the spin. It's just about telling the public what they want to hear. It's it's all about talking about gold medals rather than the crisis that's happening in Sydney and in New South Wales. He's attaching himself to winners and not the losers. And again, this is part of that political process. But qualitative research has recently come out and it's quite damning for Scott Morrison. The suggestions from these qualitative research groups is that he just seems to be missing in action. He keeps changing. He's hard to trust. And that message that the Labor Party has been pushing that Scott Morrison just had two jobs 
and he's failed at them, that's starting to resonate. And the job of the Prime Minister and the government is more than just those two jobs anyway. But this government, everything that this government touches turns to rubbish. They've recently cut Medicare, had the NBN disasters as well. They want to make cutbacks to the National Disability Insurance Scheme as well. They've had the robo-debt, which is, was a complete disaster. They've had rorts in sport grants and car parks. I suggest that no amount of spin, no amount of uh, manipulating the truth or anything like that, it's going to change things for Morrison. So obviously he can recall facts and figures and information. Now, whether they're true or not, that's a different matter. But he had one fantastic saying during the week, which is the sooner we get there, the sooner we get there. And he was talking about the vaccination rollout. But wow, that's philosophy 101 there. That's, that's magical stuff. But, you know, he sounded like a primary school student. And I don't want to keep bagging Scott Morrison over and over again, but there's just not much substance there. There's so much there to bag. Morrison wants to present himself as the leader who wants to be loved as well. But according to Machiavelli, this is really dangerous territory. The leader that wants to be constantly loved and seeking the, the desires of the electorate is not going to last too much longer. Leaders need to be seen to be actually doing things and getting things done, not just throwing money at the electorate and telling them all the good news that they want to hear. We can see Dan Andrews in Victoria made mistakes owned up to them, fixed them, made more unpopular decisions, yet is the probably the second most popular premier in Australia. I think Mark McGowan in Western Australia, who made hard decisions and unpopular decisions, but they were seen to be right. And when they were wrong, stood up and owned them and fixed them. And it was worth it. In fact, both McGowan and Andrews got a lot of trust very early and so didn't really lose a lot of following, probably gained following rather than lost it for making those hard decisions. It's quite unusual. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, and I know that these are political figures that Morrison really doesn't want to be compared to, but Jacinda Ardern made tough and hard decisions again and again and again and again. And she's one of the most well-respected leaders in the world at the moment. Now, the other thing I will say here before people say, oh, you're just worshipping, all political heroes end up disappointing. I have no doubt that down the track, I may be heavily criticising all of these people I'm now praising. But as it stands at this date, they've done a good job and they've made hard decisions and it has paid out for them electorally, it seems. Now, I've also noticed that there's a consulting firm out there. It's called McKinsey and Company. They're being paid $2.2 million, but the government won't release the details about what this payment is for. And I looked into McKinsey and Company a little bit deeper, and it's a consulting firm with very, very strong ties with the Liberal Party. Former partner Charlie Taylor, he's the treasurer of the federal Liberal Party. And his brother, Angus Taylor, he's also an MP. He also worked there before he entered Parliament. And there are other senior partners who have worked as advisors to Liberal Party ministers. Greg Hunt was also there before entering Parliament. So I did a little bit of digging around. And since the coalition has been in office since 2013, $166 million has gone to McKinsey and Company. And that's $108 million since Morrison became Prime Minister three years ago. They also provided advice 
and they were paid $660,000 for that to provide advice to the government about the vaccination rollout. And their advice last year was to sit and wait on the vaccines. The mRNA vaccines were no good, and that's the Pfizer one, and they should go for AstraZeneca. So the government paid good money for bad advice. It's incredible how currently at the federal level and the state level, and I can only talk to those too because I live in New South Wales and I'm able to get a closer view. But when it comes to Liberal Party dealings, it seems to always go down to mates and nepotism and shoveling money to people who give bad advice. I hope and I'm sure that there are honest brokers working with both governments providing services for good value. In fact, I know that there are. Well, McKinsey and Company was actually receiving contracts under the Labor government between 2007 and 2012. Half of those were leftover contracts from before 2007 with the Liberal Party government. So they have worked with both sides of politics, but especially more with the Liberal Party. I mean, I don't know that you can ban the brother of a minister from having a job, <laughs> but it's it's really not a good look. It might not lead to outright corruption, but it does involve a corruption of the information that is provided to government. And quite often, a lot of these organisations that do receive large government contracts, and that's McKinsey and Company, there's also KPMG, they receive a lot of government contracts to provide advice to the government. And these organisations will provide the information to the government that the government wants to hear. It's not necessarily the, the information that's in the public interest, it's in the interest of that particular government, because those businesses and those companies, if they're getting something like $36 million per year, providing advice and information to the government, well, they'll be wanting to give the government the news that they want to hear so that they can keep getting those contracts turning over. And that's certainly what happened in the case of KPMG. And it's certainly the case of what's happening with McKinsey and Company. So $36 million per year over the past three years, that's a pretty good business model if you can get that sort of contract system happening. Yeah, that's, I could do it for less. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly just as competently too. Well, the other issue here is that, sure, if there's a business such as KPMG providing economic modelling to the government that is simply supporting what the government wants to say, well, that's one issue, but this is during a pandemic. Providing the wrong information to the government or just the advice that the government wanted to hear, that's led to the situation that we're in at the moment. There's been a poor vaccination rollout, Hotel quarantine system hasn't been sorted out. And this is primarily because a company, McKinsey & Company, they decided to give the information to the government that the government simply wanted to hear instead of the right information on health advice. So this is where problems have arisen. It would have been better if this process didn't take place. We'd be in a different position today. Now, Labor has also received a lot of vitriol recently for saying that they'll support Stage 3 tax cuts. We did refer to this in our previous episode, but now the full effects of the vitriol from the left of the Labor Party has been coming through. Now, politically, we can see why they're doing this. They just want to get a lot of things off the plate. They just want to make sure that they've got no targets on their back. Now, there has been quite a lot of murmuring about this within the media. And if you remove one of those targets off your back, well, you're less likely to be shot. If you haven't 
got that target on your back. It's not their policy anyway, and they've decided that it's the lesser of two evils to wave this through and possibly change that into if they can get into government. Now, this is actually terrible policy. I think it's actually quite a regressive policy that they're supporting. Again, it's not their policy. It's the policy of the Liberal and the National Party, but effectively it's to change the tax rate to a flat 30% for all salaries above 50000 So someone on $200,000 will receive a tax cut of $9,000. Someone on a $60,000 salary will receive a tax cut of just $275. And overall, it costs the budget $18 billion per year. Now, you're sort of thinking, well, if you've got an overall national debt of $1 trillion and a budget deficit of around $200 billion, well, $18 billion isn't going to make that much difference or not. I'm not sure if it's actually good policy or not. I'm not even sure if it's good politics, but Labor can't be attacked on this now, although the media will try their best to do that or just manufacture something. And that's something that they've tried to do with now claiming that Labor is on the verge of dumping a $2 billion cancer treatment policy for pensioners when they're actually not. So... It seems to me that this for sure is pretty bad policy as far as the Labor Party is concerned. But if you're trying to remove all of those targets on your back, this is probably a good way of doing it. I'm not sure if it will work, but that's why they're doing it. There's no point really. I wonder if the strategy is that they can then campaign against this. Well, this is what the Liberal Party bought in. We voted for it because we weren't going to win and we wanted you to see the deleterious effects of it. That's a very Paul Keating thing to do. There was that famous, I think it was a tax policy where he said, if we don't get uh, the balance of power in the Senate, we're going to wave through all these bad, you know, you have to vote for us in the lower house and in the upper house. Because if they win the lower house and you give us the balance of power in the Senate, we're going to let you, you know, we're going to punish you for voting for the other side. (laughs) I wonder if there's a bit of that in it. And this is what the government has bought you and we can fix it. You've also got to pick your battles. And this is true of the Liberal Party too. You have to pick your battles. Tony Abbott picked every battle which was successful for a very brief time and then it failed. I think Anthony Albanese is a much more cautious figure than uh, Tony Abbott was. So he's picking the battles that he knows that he can afford to lose, or he's a, him and his advisors and, and Labor cabinet. Governments can do things that oppositions can't. And I think this might be a, an acknowledgement of that. I don't like it, but being pragmatic. Same for me as well. I don't condone it, but I can see politically why they're doing it. There is that basic rule within politics that you never stand between a bucket of money and the electorate. And Kim Beasley found this out back in 1998, where he railed against the tax cuts that were being offered by the Howard government at the time. He was pilloried within the media. He was pilloried politically by the Liberal Party. His own party was wondering, well, what are the merits of going against tax cuts? And I think they were fairly modest tax cuts as well. But what Kim Beasley was trying to do at that time was present himself as a fiscal conservative. And that's possibly... Well, I'm not sure if, you know, offering $18 billion in tax cut is being fiscally conservative, but I think that's what Anthony Albanese is trying to do. He's just trying to get rid of all of these perceived problems and an actual problem for the Labor Party and make sure that all of the focus is back onto Scott Morrison. At the last election, 2019, Morrison had only been Prime Minister for about nine months. Not much was really known about Scott Morrison, but Bill Shorten had been the leader of the opposition for about six years, and 
Most of the focus at that time was on Bill Shorten. While Morrison was able to get onto his sheep shearing stunts, his tractor driving stunts, playing bingo halls and that sort of thing, this time around, two years later, Morrison's been in the job for a total of three years. By the time of the next election, it will more than likely be close to four years. That sort of strategy won't work for Morrison. He has to provide the substance that, in my opinion, he's not capable of providing. And Anthony Albanese is making sure that Scott Morrison has all the focus upon him. He can't go anywhere else. He can't do media stunts. Media stunts will certainly work to some level, but it can't be everything. He has to provide a lot more substance at the next election than he's been capable of doing in the past. And maybe that's what Albanese's strategy actually is. Yeah, I, again, we, we can't say, but given all the evidence, I think that's it. And it, certainly, I've said this before, uh, Scott Morrison is one of the least substantial people to ever hold. In fact, the least substantial person to ever hold the prime ministership. I think it's a, a blight on the Liberal Party. Even prime ministers who we didn't like, John Howard, for example, had substance. Tony Abbott mightn't have had substance, but had an interest. Tony wasn't a mediocrity for all these many faults as prime minister. There was always something interesting. And there was always that sense that he was trying to be substantial without really knowing how to do it. Malcolm Turnbull wasn't as substantial as he thought he was, but he could at least go overseas and not embarrass us, which Scott Morrison and Tony Abbott weren't really able to do. The next six months up to election time is going to be very, very interesting. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.